Welcome to All Along the Wasatch, a public affairs program produced by Bonneville Salt Lake City. If you would like to submit a request to be on the show, please email mparsons at ksl.com. Now, here's the host of All Along the Wasatch, Mike Parsons. My guests today are with the Friends of Great Salt Lake, and their website is fogsl.org. It is Katie Newburn, who is Education and Outreach Director, and Holly Simonson, Membership and Programs Director. Welcome. Thank Thank you. you. Let's get to know both of you a little bit first. Katie, maybe you could tell us what's your background. How did you end up becoming part of Friends of Great Salt Lake? (laughs) Well, I've been with Friends for about three and a half years. And in just that time, so much has changed at the lake and in our community, too. Um, It's become a much more urgent and high-profile issue. And I feel really privileged to get to be a part of such an important mission Um, My background is in environmental education, and I can't imagine a more important issue to help the community understand. And Holly, how about you? Uh, I started my career as an educator, taught high school English for about eight years. Uh, After that, I went back to art school to earn my MFA. And during that time, I started working with Great Salt Lake as an artistic collaborator. Uh, I was brought on to Friends of Great Salt Lake to serve as an ad hoc board member with the task of developing our arts program. And the arts program, the Alfred Lamborn Arts Program, is now in its ninth year. Um, Adjacent to that, I started to work for friends in an administrative capacity and then eventually developed into the position I hold today, which is membership in programs director. I always think it's interesting how people end up where they are. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So tell us about the beginning of Friends of Great Salt Lake. When was it founded? By whom? And why? Uh, Friends of Great Salt Lake was founded in 1994. Uh, by a small group of concerned citizens who saw a need in our community for collaboration and communication regarding Great Salt Lake issues. Um, I think the goal then is exactly the same as it is today. Uh, we seek to be friends, literally. The The name of our organization is, is literal. Uh, we seek to be friends with all Great Salt Lake stakeholders. Uh, and to us, that means policymakers, industry experts, other NGOs, uh, and basically everyone who relies on healthy Great Salt Lake which is, Which is all, all of us. us. Yeah. <laughs> and not just all of us humans either. Exactly. How is the organization funded? Friends of Great Salt Lake is a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, we're funded by the generosity of our member donors. Membership with Friends of Great Salt Lake costs only $30 annually for a household. Uh, majority of our income does come from those individual contributions. Mm-hmm. And nearly all of the money raised goes to directly support our programs. And Holly kind of talked about it a little bit, Katie, but what's what's the long-term vision for the Great Salt Lake? I mean, right now that might be tough because it's sort of in crisis, but what's your goal as an organization for 10, 20 years from now? So our long-term vision is comprehensive watershed-based restoration and protection of Great Salt Lake's ecosystem. And I think more specifically what that looks like is a recognition of a minimum water elevation or volume of inflows necessary to support the multitude, the wide variety of benefits that the lake provides. So ecological, economic, cultural, and otherwise. Um, A lake needs water, and we need to recognize how much water it's going to take to keep it healthy. And Holly, maybe you can take this one. Um, Our Great Salt Lake is very unique. It's a terminus lake. Nothing flows out of it. It's salty. Um, Are there other lakes like that in the world? Absolutely. Uh, there is Lake Yermia in Iran. Uh, there is 
Mono Lake. Mono Lake, of course, in Northern California. Uh, But but not many. Not many. Not many. Not many as, um, you know, sort of interesting and and important as Great Salt Lake. We are, you know, um, a hemispherically important saline lake. Um, We are designated on the Western Hemisphere Shorebird Reserve Network um, as a critical habitat for migrating birds. Um, and we do have other saline systems uh, that we do attempt to learn for, learn from. Uh, I know that you have family in California, mm-hmm. and we do learn from the Owens Lake system um, and try not to make similar mistakes. As and that was <laughs> a similar lake. lake, but much smaller. Smaller, yeah. Katie, can you talk about the, what happened at that lake and what we can learn from it? Sure. So Owens Lake, like Great Salt Lake, is a terminal saline lake in Southern California that was drained dry from diversions of the tributaries flowing into it as the city of Los Angeles grew. And it's basically a cautionary tale of how what happens when these saline lakes desiccate. And at Owens Lake, the population in Owens Valley is a fraction of what our population in the Great Salt Lake Basin is here. So the consequences, especially in terms of dust and air quality coming off of that exposed lake bed, um, stand to be much more severe for the three million people who live within northern Utah's basin, Great Salt Lake's basin. And tell me if I have this right. With the Great Salt Lake, we have more of that bad stuff under there. We have more people, and it's a much bigger lake. That's right. Yeah, bigger lake, bigger lake bed, larger population. And, you know, another consequence of the of Great Salt Lake being downstream of this large population is over, you know, decades of development and industry upstream of the lake, there has been pollution that's entered the lake that now is contained in the lake bed and gets picked back up into the air in the form of dust. So definitely stands to pose um, pretty serious health consequences for our population that we all have an interest in avoiding. And there's stuff under there. I mean, there's the pollution, obviously, but is is it true that there's stuff in that dirt that is just there naturally that we wouldn't want to blow into the Wasatch Front? Yeah, there are naturally occurring toxins like arsenic, um, but many of those other concerning toxins like mercury, lead, selenium, those are mostly the, the product of pollution over time. So we'll get back to the lake in a minute, but I want to talk about your organization a little bit more. Uh, tell me about your board of directors and your advisory council on your website. It seems like you're pretty proud of both of those those groups of people. <laughs> and that's not always the case at every nonprofit. <laughs> yeah. Our board of directors and our advisory board uh, represent leaders from a variety of professions. We have really intelligent scientists, business leaders, educators, and artists. Um, waterfowl, hunters. waterfowl hunters. Again, we're, yeah. we like to be friends with everybody, bring them all to the table and – you know, advocate on behalf of all of these many interests that the lake I mean, if the lake's going to survive, all of those different interests have to make some sacrifice, I would think. Yeah. Um, What, Katie, you're the Education and Outreach Director. What kind of educational programs do you offer? Yeah, so um, our biggest educational program is our Lakeside Learning Field Trip Program, which brings about 3,000 fourth grade students out to Great Salt Lake each year. And during these field trips, we help the students to understand the lake's ecology, um, but mainly we want to help 
facilitate a really positive experience for them that helps them to appreciate it. The lake is so unique. If you've been out there, you know, it's this very otherworldly, mm-hmm. amazing landscape, and it just triggers your innate curiosity. So the students really are able to have that experience, ask questions, make observations, and again, hopefully build that appreciation that they can carry with them as they become decision makers. Somehow I grew up here and I've spent almost my entire life here, and I had not been to Antelope Island until two years ago. Oh, wow. I mean, it is a really cool place. Yeah. And it's so different from you're in in city, and then just a few minutes later, it's like you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, This might be a weird question, but what grade would you give the lake today in its current condition if A is everything's perfect? Yeah, I didn't know how to answer this question, Mike. <laughs> um, but uh, I I went with a as a former educator uh, kind of kind of bend. So, um, oh as, yeah, you were a teacher. So yeah, I used you've to be given te- grades many times. <laughs> I used to be a teacher, so I have a I have an answer non answer. Um, <laughs> but if Great Salt Lake uh, were my student, right, I would be doing all the things I'm currently doing, which mm. is sounding the alarm, right. right? Uh, calling everyone I know, participating in public comment periods, uh, preparing to speak to legislators, engaging with the public, right? Uh, really talking to everybody I, I meet because uh, Great Salt Lake, the student, is in crisis, right? Mm-hmm. And it's my responsibility. It's all of our responsibilities to help, right? So maybe rather than a letter grade, it's time to bring the parents in and chat. Yes, <laughs> and I, I would say those of us who are in charge of preserving and protecting Great Salt Lake would have a needs improvement, yeah. right? Do you have a grade, Katie? <laughs> no. No, you're good. Okay, all right. We'll move on. I would give it, um, you know, I would give it an an A for, I don't know. I can't, I can't get, I can't put like a, I can't quantify it that way. It's not the lake's fault. It's not the lake's fault, but it is like. The system has failed. That's true. I'm so grateful for what's still there, you know, like it's still beautiful. It's still, you know, functioning as an ecosystem. And so in that way, I'm really grateful for what it still is. All right. So maybe like a B plus. Okay. That's not too bad. There's room for improvement, but it's not bad. A lot of room. Um, So how low is the lake? I know we're setting records. I remember back in 1987 when we had the flooding and we built those really expensive pumps out in the West Desert that I don't think we've ever used once. What's the level? They're still maintaining them. Are they? Well, you know, hopefully we'll be back to that someday. Um, We can worry about that later. But how big of a difference is there from like back then to where we are now? Yeah, so uh, today the lake's surface elevation is 4,188.8 feet above sea level, um, which is an all-time historic record low. And hopefully that's as low as it will go for this year. Um, It's Record high in 1986 was about 4,211 feet. So it might not sound like much, but for a shallow lake that Great Salt Lake is, uh, that's a 22-foot drop, and that translates into an even larger loss in surface area. So right now the lake is about half of its healthy average size. Because it's so shallow, that that 22 feet, that's a lot of land. Yeah, the average depth of Great Salt Lake is only about 13 feet. So how did we get here? I... Part of me thinks, you know, having grown up here and taking Utah history, this was all once Lake Bonneville, and Great Salt Lake is kind of the puddle that's left from Lake Bonneville. So on the one side, like, isn't it normal that it's going away because it's been going away for thousands of years, right? But what did we do to cause the damage as people? I think there are three main things that we're looking at. Um, First off, as you know, we're in a mega drought. Mm -hmm. Uh, The entire West is. Uh, So that 
element of of a changing climate um, has been a factor, not to mention Utah's humongous population growth. Um, Everybody wants to live here and for good reason. Uh, And then also continued diversions from the lake where we're taking water out of the primary tributaries that flow into Great Salt Lake. And it's not like we're taking the water out for any bad use. We're taking it out to grow crops. We're taking it out for people to drink. We're taking it out for industry. How do we, with more people and less rain, solve this problem? What's the big picture? I think the big picture is learning to live within the means of our natural water supply. And that's probably going to take a bit of sacrifice on the part of all of those water users. And I think you're totally correct that we, you know, don't need to feel guilty about using the water that we need to use. Um, But it is going to come down to, I think, priorities and becoming more efficient in how we're using our water, um, doing more with less, basically, and allowing, again, more water within that finite supply to flow to support Great Salt Lake. And I told you both before we went on the air that the thing that raised the alarm for me was the New York Times podcast, The Daily. It's about a month ago, six weeks ago, something like that, where they did an entire episode about the Great Salt Lake. And their approach was it sounds pretty dire. And I had no idea how bad it was and how bad it could become. Why are we not sounding the alarm louder? I know your organization is, but what are the roadblocks to getting people to understand how bad this really is? I think us, uh, for us at least, we're we're um, looking for public awareness. Um, I don't think that um, our population is uh, partic- responds particularly well or to you know kind of fear based mm. uh, tactics. Uh, we are a population who likes to work together, uh, and as we've discussed today, we need everybody to help. And so, you know, just like when you're mentioning 1987, people getting together and sandbagging, mm-hmm. right? Um, helping homes not get flooded. It's the same thing, but in reverse, right? right. We need uh, people to, right, come together, industry to come together, agriculture, lawmakers, everybody to solve the problem. And that, I think, is the way to talk about it to our community. Mm. My guests today are with the Friends of Great Salt Lake, and their website is FOGSL.org. It is Katie Newburn, who is Education and Outreach Director, and Holly Simonson, Membership and Programs Director. I would like to see, this is just my opinion, I would like to see our leaders locally being a little more um, aggressive about maybe putting in place some penalties for using too much water or some watering restrictions that are a little more uh, intense than, than what we have Um, I have a neighbor who watered her lawn for 30 minutes every night all summer. And as a result, my front lawn looked good because she was watering it. And I was telling my wife, I don't want a green lawn. People will know I'm a water waster. I want that yellow lawn. Exactly. Uh, So how do we get government to get a little more aggressive? Hearing from the constituents that those leaders are, you know, representing, being in touch with your representatives, that's a great place to start. Being activated, um, being civically engaged, that's going to be a really important part of solving this issue. I think a lot of our elected leaders especially have been hesitant to implement restrictions on water use that are pretty common sense um, because, you know, they're fearful of, they're fearful that their constituents are going to feel, you know, the pain of higher water rates and they won't mm. be supported. They won't support that. I think the cool thing is that most of our leaders now do have an awareness, right, um, from, 
you know, Governor Cox to, you know, a, a ton of people working in the, in the legislature uh, to, you know, uh, municipalities and, and mayoral ships all throughout the valley. Um, I think what we what Katie is saying um, is absolutely accurate where those leaders need to hear from their constituents. Like, I think probably your representative would be shocked to hear that you, you know, that I want a yellow <laughs> yeah, that that would be a badge <laughs> of honor for you. Right. right? Yeah. And when we're talking about those hard things, um, maybe they're actually not that hard. Right. Yeah. Talking yeah. about pulling up your non-functional turf. Right. right. Ripping your park strip out, um, requiring developers uh, to use water wise landscaping mm-hmm. in their developing uh, in their new developments, um, you know, installing secondary water meters. Right. So people even know, right, how much water they're using yeah, for their secondary yeah. secondary water. Um, those things aren't tough. Those those are not tough asks. And if um, those leaders heard from their constituents that, yeah, that's not too big of a deal. I mm. can do that. I can lend a hand in this way. I think that would go a long way. All right. We'll move away from the politics and back to the lake a little bit. <laughs> um, Katie, can you talk about the salinity of the lake and why that's so important and how it changes when the level changes? Definitely. So as Great Salt Lake is getting smaller, which, again, it's about half of its healthy average size right now, it's also getting saltier. The water is evaporating out, but it leaves the salt behind. And so that same amount of salt is being concentrated in a smaller and smaller mm-hmm. amount of water. Um, and that is posing some challenges for the things that live in the lake, brine shrimp, brine flies, microbialites, and those things living in the lake support 10 million migratory birds Mm. who stop at the lake each year to nest, rest, and feed. Um, And so right now, the lake's salinity is between 18 and 19 percent. A healthy salinity range for the main part of the lake would be about 13 to 15 percent. And if we remain at this elevated salinity or it continues to rise even higher, we could see a collapse of the food chain within the lake within a couple years, which is really alarming. Um, There are species of birds, including the eared grebe and the Wilson's phalarope, that we can have up to a third or a half of the world's population of these birds at the lake within the year. So those particular species stand to be severely Mm. impaired if they come to the lake and there's no food for them. And that's really the first cliff that we're heading off is the collapse of this ecosystem. I mean, the air quality and the dust is a huge issue that's very pressing for all of us humans who live proximate to Great Salt Lake. But as an ecosystem, it is on the brink of losing its functionality. And we really urgently need to get more water to the system to support it. I was reading somewhere that the brine shrimp are actually doing better than we thought they would, but we're still heading towards that precipice where they won't. Yeah. I mean, We're living the experiment, you know. We've never seen these levels of salinity. We've never seen the water so low ever before in recorded history. And we don't really know how the ecosystem is going to adapt or not adapt. We are already seeing um, the life cycles of the brine flies being impaired. There's some evidence to support that that's being collected. I mean, the researchers are you know, monitoring as best they can right now to try to, you know, understand what's happening and um, how the ecosystem is adapting or not. But we we won't know. <laughs> right. So we'll just find out as it goes. Yeah. Um, the other strange thing, the cyc- cyclical thing, and tell me if I've got this right, with the, the lake lower level or the lower lake level, we're not going to get the lake effect snow that we normally get, which, of course, goes right to the ski resorts, which – is the tourists coming to town and spending their money. 
So if that snow's not there, fewer tourists are coming. And then the worst part of the cycle is in the spring when that lower snowpack melts, less water is getting back to the lake, and round and round it goes. Certainly. And another part that, you know, kind of gets less press is uh, dust particles are actually being kicked up in those storms and uh, in the, and deposits in the snowpack cause that snow to melt faster. Oh, so even so, worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God forbid it goes away completely. What would life along the Wasatch Front look like with no Great Salt Lake? And I have to tell you honestly, if I had asked myself that question a year ago, my answer would have been no big deal. We'll just build stuff out there. But it's far more complicated than that. Yeah. To me, it looks like unlivable air quality, um, large-scale climate migration, people moving, which is already happening. Um, I think that's going to have major implications for our otherwise robust economy. Um, People won't want to live here. Sick people, sick kids, sick birds. Yeah. And politicians don't want to also be the ones to say we need to stop building so many houses and maybe slow that down a little because that's a pretty unpopular opinion. So, Holly, people are listening and they're realizing that we need to do something. You talked earlier briefly about becoming a member of Friends of Great Salt Lake. How do people do that? All right. Yeah, we encourage people to visit our website. We encourage people to get educated. We have a ton of research and resources on the website, which is FOGSL.org. And we also encourage you to join our organization for $30. Um, membership will provide you with access to all the latest information regarding Great Salt Lake, uh, including ways you can help get involved during the upcoming legislative session by advocating for particular bills uh, that will help protect Great Salt Lake. So we'll help you uh, put you in touch with your representatives, um, help you understand the bills, and help you um, advocate for Great Salt Lake in that way. If somebody just can't become a member for 30 bucks, and I think most people probably could, but if, <laughs> if they don't want to spend that $30, are, are there donations of time that you can use from people? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think donations of time are really important, and uh, we are such a small organization that we are asking people to just go talk to people, right? Go talk to your neighbors. Uh, talk to people in your church group. Talk to people in your book club, right? Uh, and do what you do, right? Like that's always the advice I give people. Uh, if you're a poet, write some poems, mm. right? If you're if you're a waterfowl hunter, talk to your duck hunting buddies, right? Uh, and see what you can do and where you can fill a niche in your community uh, where you can actually be be helpful and make a difference. I mean, this is grassroots stuff and it yeah. really, really is impactful when people uh, can figure out a way that, that helps and and is authentic to them. Now you mentioned the art, and you mentioned that that's kind of how you came into the organization. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, our arts program is called the Alfred Lamborn Arts Program, uh, named after a famous Utah painter uh, who painted uh, depictions of Great Salt Lake. Um, every year we have an art show uh, that showcases work from individuals who are Depicting Great Salt Lake in the categories of visual arts, literary arts, movement, or sound. So it's really all-inclusive for all of the arts. Uh, Submissions for this coming year's prize will open on April 1st and close on May 15th. Uh, So if you're an artist who's working uh, on something, we would love to see your work. And there's, there's, so there's ways to get involved that most people wouldn't think about. Oh yeah, there's so many yeah, so many ways. Um in September we host a massive cleanup um of of debris out at the lake. Um there are ways that uh you can 
take your friends and family on a virtual field trip uh, to the lake. Is there a way that you can do that? Uh, there are, you know, uh, right now we are in the process of, of helping people understand um, a sensitive issue regarding United States Magnesium's request for a 401 permit uh, that would allow them to extend their canal deeper into mm. Great Salt Lake and draw more water Not up the through time the to lake. Do that. Not the time to do that. So, um, you know, working with our, our constituents and our members to help them understand how to, who and how to write um, a letter expressing that. And they just held a public comment period last week, um, which I was um, privileged enough to to speak at. And then um, also they are accepting written letters or emails until November 12th. And there's a lot of industry that people I don't think know about around the Great Salt Lake. I mean, there's there, people know that there's the brine shrimp there, but I don't know that everybody knows that some of that is harvested. And then there's the salt that's taken out of the lake as well. So there's there's so many different parts to this, and I didn't understand until you just explained it 20 minutes ago that friends of Great Salt Lake doesn't mean just friends of the lake. It's friends with everybody who who's involved with the lake. I think we've covered some of them, Katie, but are there some myths out there about the Great Salt Lake that <laughs> we just need to shoot down? Well, one myth that I love is the legend of the Great Salt Lake whales. <laughs> oh, I've never heard about that. <laughs> yeah, which is, you know, like many things, um, an old kind of legend. Um, I would say the biggest misconception that people have about Great Salt Lake is that it's a dead sea. It's a dead mm. lake. There's nothing out there. It's wasted space. It's smelly. It's buggy. All of those things. Um, it can be smelly. It can be buggy. It's also extremely beautiful. It's one of the most mm -hmm. beautiful places I've ever seen. Um, it speaks for itself when you go out there. It is a very unique, otherworldly landscape. But the infrastructure around the lake also tells the story of how it's changing and how it's been changing a lot very recently. So I would encourage you, if you haven't been or if you haven't been recently, to go out there. Antelope Island State Park is a great destination. It's even over the wintertime, um, you can see bald eagles out off of, on the sides of the causeways, standing on the sheets of ice that lap mm. up on the causeway, hunting on waterfowl that are out there. You can see the bison herd. Mm -hmm. um, it is like a time capsule and it just, you know, transports you even though there's two and a half million people living within 50 miles of Great Salt Lake along the Wasatch Front. It's just enough out of sight that it can easily be out of mind, but it's time we all get acquainted with it and there's no time like the present. That, that brings up something I hadn't even thought of. Um, Antelope Island really isn't an, an island anymore. Correct. Um, what effect is that going to have? Are, are some of the wildlife out there going to be able to get into town, <laughs> vice versa? Thankfully, there haven't been any issues with bison wandering around Syracuse <laughs> <That'd be interesting>. <laughs> yet. <laughs> um, I believe they're pretty well fenced in, actually, out there across the lake bed. But um, for some of Great Salt Lake's other islands, like Gunnison Island, specifically up in the lake's north arm, that's been a, 
um, breeding and nesting ground for white pelicans. Um, many other species of birds will nest on Great Salt Lake's islands because they have historically been safe from predators mm-hmm. and other disturbances. And now those islands, no longer being surrounded by water, are exposed to predators mm. um, that can prey on eggs and baby birds that will then not be a part of next year's adult population. So there's kind of a ripple effect on that. There's so much we could cover still, I'm sure. Katie (laughs) Newburn is Education and Outreach Director and Holly Simonson Membership and Programs Director. I can definitely feel the passion you both have for this lake that is so important to all of us. And the website, again, is FOGSL.org. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to All Along the Wasatch with Mike Parsons. If you would like to submit a request to be a guest on the show, please email mparsons at ksl.com. That's mparsons at ksl.com.